Support for this podcast and the following message come from Internet Essentials from Comcast. Connecting more than 6 million low-income people to low-cost, high-speed Internet at home. So students are ready for homework, class, graduation, and more. Now they're ready for anything. It's All Songs Considered from NPR Music. I'm Robin Hilton, and we've been celebrating the 10th anniversary of uh, NPR Music in this podcast by looking back at some music milestones of the past decade. We are up to 2012. I'm joined by NPR Music's Anastasia Silkas and Stephen Thompson. Hey, guys. Hello. Hey there. And uh, we're going to kick off our look back at 2012 with this band. And uh, this is that was Taylor Swift. <laughs> <laughs> this is this is Pussy Riot, uh, a band from Moscow that formed in 2011, and then um, and early in 2012 they staged uh, I guess what you might call an unofficial show at. Moscow's Christ the Savior Cathedral and Anastasia, what happened next? Well, so this had been a group that had been around in different configurations beforehand. They're sort of the remnants and new offspring of a performance art collective that had been doing political kind of statements and performance art for a long time beforehand. So they decided that they really wanted to protest Putin in a very public space and in a space that in their minds was really allied with Putin's government, and that was the Russian Orthodox Church. So they went to the cathedral in Moscow. There are a couple of cathedrals, but this is the big official one. And they said, Virgin Mary, take Putin away, drive Putin away. And it was kind of a messy affair. They didn't manage to get a guitar up with them. They were up on the altar for less than like a minute and a half. It was a minute, 40 seconds or something like that before they got pulled down by security. Just beforehand, they had recorded a dry run at another church and they wound up splicing that into the footage they managed to get from Christ the Savior and put online and put their vocals on and it went viral and it became this incredible global viral thing. And... They were arrested. They were arrested. There were five of them who went for the performance. Three were arrested. Uh, Two were never caught. And the women of Pussy Riot had pledged to each other not to reveal their identities. But three were arrested and two were eventually sent to two-year prison sentences way out in far-flung areas in Russia. And one uh, one was actually released before she served any more time, but they were held for months while their trial was going on, before their trial went on, and afterwards, and they became really a cause celebrity, like everybody, all sorts of international musicians from Zayn Malik to Madonna were very publicly out supporting Pussy Riot. So apart from putting this otherwise unknown band on the map, in in the bigger picture, you know, why do you think this resonated so much across the globe? Well, a couple of reasons. They said you throughout their trial, they said that they weren't really attacking religion or religiosity, that their aim is really at the government, but they chose a space that was traditionally really, really unfriendly to women. You know, I I grew up in an Eastern Orthodox tradition, and like all the other traditions, the Russian Orthodox Church literally does not make space for women at the altar. They can't become priests. They're actually not allowed to 
enter that part of the church, unless it's their wedding day or they're a caretaker cleaning the stuff in that part of the church. So for them to carve out that space was a huge thing physically and psychically. And I think it really resonated with people. And of course, there was a lot of feeling that they were protesting power and prestige at every level. And the Russian Orthodox Church was really has been for a long time, and certainly in the Putin era, has been really strongly allied with Putin's government. So I think that they found a space and a place that really resonated with people. Well, in addition to being this engine for social change, Pussy Riot also, I think, changed the culture at NPR because it forced uh, Robert Siegel to say Pussy Riot on uh, on our air. <laughs> which, uh, that is true. Which, was that... a, which, was a, which felt like a sea change. <laughs> That's true. And it sort of led the way for people to talk about pussy hats on air and all sorts of uh, pussy-related things. <laughs> well, my goodness. So that was uh, that's all started to... Uh, that all started to unfold in the beginning of 2012. And then March, um, Stephen, you and I were at, in Austin for South by Southwest that year. And Bruce Springsteen gave the keynote address. Yeah. I've, and I've... why was it so amazing? <laughs> it was amazing. Yeah. I mean, a lot of I've been to a lot of South by Southwests and I've certainly experienced a lot of keynote addresses. And sometimes uh, sometimes they become sort of glorified uh, gather around while I sing some songs and chat in, in the middle. And sometimes they become kind of long screeds. And what this was, what Springsteen did, he seemed to try up front to try to give some sort of unifying theory on rock and roll. And then, of course, dissected the ways in which you can't possibly have a unifying theory and started breaking out all the various genres of music that were at South by Southwest alone and just talked about like authenticity and expression in ways that as the speech went along became more and more powerful. Yeah, I mean, he talked about the history of music, his own personal history as a musician and how how it's changed for everybody over the decades and uh, what it means to make music now compared to then. And it, it was just so inspiring. You, you've, it's the kind of thing that Maybe you, you were busy doing other things while while he was speaking, but within five minutes into it, you were on the edge of your seat waiting for the ever, the next thing he was going to say. Yeah, and he, he told a lot of stories about uh, musicians that he had worked with or opportunities he'd had to share a stage with, with James Brown, who he says uh, called him onto the stage saying, uh, Mr. Uh, Mr. Mr. Uh, born in the USA. <laughs> so, it's, so it's also kind of self-effacing where he's kind of telling the story of James Brown not even knowing his name. Um, but but. Talking about not only talking about the way that his career has intersected with the careers that most inspired him, but it kind of culminates in uh, in this this treatise on this land is your land and what this land and Woody Guthrie and what this land is your land uh, meant to him and to music in general. And so he kind of ties uh, everything together and untangles this huge web of influences, kind of just speaking to the awesome power of music, however it is you choose to approach it. And he had this one bit I want to play from uh, his speech where he uh, starts breaking down all these different genres and subgenres and sub subgenres. Uh, it was just incredible. When I look out from, from my stage these days, I look into the eyes of uh, three generations of people. Uh, and still popular music continues to provide its primary function as youth music, as a joyous argument starter, and as a subject for long, booze filled nights of debate with. Steve Van Zandt, <laughs> over who reigns ultimately supreme, 
There are so many subgenres and factions. Two-tone, acid rock, alternative dance, alternative metal, alternative rock, art punk, art rock, avant-garde metal, black metal, black and death metal, Christian metal, heavy metal, funk metal, glam metal, medieval metal, indie metal, melodic death metal, melodic black metal, metal core, hardcore, electronic hardcore, folk punk, folk rock, pop punk, Brit pop, grunge, sad core, surf music, psychedelic rock, punk rock, hip hop, rap rock, rap metal, Nintendo core, huh? I just want to know what Nintendo Core is myself. But rock noir, shock rock, skate punk, noise core, noise pop, noise rock, pagan rock, Paisley underground, indie pop, indie rock, heartland rock, roots rock, samba rock, screamo, emo, shoegazing, stoner rock, swamp pop, synth pop, rock against communism, garage rock, blues rock, death and roll, lo-fi, jangle pop, folk music. Um, just add neo and post to everything I said and mention them all again. Uh, oh yeah, and rock and roll. So, uh, I mean, holy shit, this is all going on in this town right now. Uh, for a guy who realizes U2 is probably the last band he's going to know the names of all four members of, <laughs> it's overwhelming. <laughs> I think he was just reading the genre descriptions in like a South by Southwest brochure, but it was very, very funny. And, you know, and it sort of, to me, felt like a precursor of what he's been doing. I mean, first with the book, but now with the Broadway show, too. It's it's about storytelling. It's something that clearly he has eased into. And I, I don't know, maybe I'm reading the tea leaves retrospectively a little too much, but it felt like that was maybe a warm up of sorts. Yeah, you reach a point where, you know, when you can't do what he does at 80, 90 years. I mean, some people have tried, but like the man puts a lot of sweat and muscle into his performances. You've got to find some way to entertain people without killing yourself in the process. So telling stories is a great way to do that. Um, so we have to take a, a short break and we'll have more in a moment. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Lyft. Reminding listeners that they could be relaxing in a lift ride right now, with their eyes closed, listening to Beethoven, or whale sounds, or a babbling brook, or something else relaxing. Lyft provides rides as relaxing as the buttery smooth voice of a public radio announcer, because riding is just a more relaxing way to drive. Lyft. It matters how you get there. Download and ride today. We're going through 2012 more or less chronologically. Uh, let me play uh, a little bit of this uh, and we'll talk about it. A tornado flew around my room before you came. Excuse the mess it made. It usually doesn't rain in Southern California, much like Arizona. My eyes don't shed tears, but body boy, when I'm thinking about you. No, 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 I've been thinking about you You, no, 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 I've been thinking about you Do you think about me still? Do you, do you? Or do you not think so far ahead? Cause I've been thinking about forever Ooh. 
And this is obviously Frank Ocean uh, from his record channel Orange, his, his breakthrough record that came out in the summer of 2012. This song called Thinking About You, Stephen Thompson. How do I talk about this? This this is, I think, one of genuinely one of the best songs of, of the decade. It's so vulnerable and guarded and charming and sweet and romantic. It's got this breakdown in it where he just, like, it's got these little notes that it hits that just cause my chest to cave in a little bit. I love this song so much, and this record just has so much invention behind it in addition to the to the poetry and warmth. This is a very, this is a record about what it feels like to be a young person who's just finding out who they are. The whole record is just kind of shooting off in a lot of different directions with just ideas spraying everywhere. It is such an uh, uh, an inventive record, but it, it's so human at the same time. And also significant because he wrote an open letter on his Tumblr page, Frank Ocean did, that I guess he originally intended to, to be the liner notes or in the liner notes for Channel Orange, in which he talked about his unrequited love of another man uh, when he was a lot younger. It was Frank Ocean coming out. Yeah, there, there was a there was a coming out statement that came with it that was very, very powerful and poignant and, and beautifully written and kind of served as a little bit of a companion piece to this record that allowed people to contextualize a lot of where it was coming from. And I think the vulnerability inherent in that uh, in the summer of 2012 really made this record resonate even more with people than I think it, it, it already would have. It's it's I mean, this record's a triumph. The other thing about this record is I think doing it in the studio setting. For me, I love the record too, but I can't untwin it in my head from his Grammy performance that was a shaky affair the following year. And the one thing that strikes me is that he, to to me, is an artist who is so much more suited to studio setting to sort of explore vulnerability and sort of the, the closed hive of recording space and time. And it so did not work live. Um, you know, it was a very challenging performance on on a lot of different levels. Um, Pitch wise, sort of in the way he occupied the space on the stage, and that's a it's a tough place to be. You know, that's looking for as mainstream a hit as possible. You know, the Grammy is all things to all people, and of course that makes it no things to no people. But it was such an unfortunate epilogue to such a masterful album. I mean, I think all your points are very, very, very valid. That was a very rough uh, performance on the Grammys. But I think it also, I I think you make a really interesting point about emotional resonance does not always translate into showmanship and vice versa. And I I think this album is, I I like this record as a headphone record. I don't necessarily need to see it played out on on an awards show or or an arena stage. I think it's, this is a very personal record to him. And I think I experienced it as a very personal record as as a listener. As we've been looking back at the past decade, one of the things that we've looked at in the changing landscape of how music is made and how it gets out to people, we've talked a lot about how artists can continue to make a living uh, doing this if, if no, nobody's buying music anymore. 
And there was an important milestone uh, that happened with Amanda Palmer in 2012. So in April, she announced that she was going to be launching a new album and she wanted to raise money via Kickstarter, which was still a pretty new concept at that point. And her aim was to raise $100,000 towards the making of the album. And instead, she wound up raising over a million dollars. And her credo became, don't make people pay for music, just let them. And it was a really important moment and paradigm shift for musicians that you could, and and in her mind, maybe even should, uh, go to your audience and let them pay what they they wanted and also make it sort of an even the making of the album make that something of an interactive experience that you really are going directly for fan support even before you start a project and uh what she came up with is a record called theater's evil uh let's hear a little bit of it this is a song called the killing type i wouldn't kill you in a war i don't get what they do it for it's also terrible Despite raising a, a, an enormous chunk of money, and by you know by any estimation, you'd think it was a, a success uh, for Amanda Palmer. It really didn't go as well as she'd hoped. Well, right, because then she asked uh, for the tour dates related to this project. She asked at each tour stop for local musicians to volunteer to play with her for exposure and beer and hugs. And neither hugs nor exposure have ever paid anyone's rent. And there was a lot of backlash. And eventually she said, you know, yes, uh, I'll pay for you. But it caused a fair amount of resentment among the music communities, especially for younger musicians who would love the opportunity to play with Amanda Palmer, but at the same time felt like this woman had raised a lot of money and she continued to parlay the success of that. It wound up being a TED talk for her um, called The Art of Asking in 2013. And wouldn't you know it, in 2014, there was a book also called The Art of Asking about this experience of asking fans to, to pay. So it created it created a, a, a fair backlash. It was also, though, her explanation for why she did what she did. That, I mean, the TED Talk in the book gave her a platform for answering all these critics. That's absolutely true. I, I think as much as she came in for criticism for, for trying to get musicians to perform for free, there was also something I found that Art of Asking TED Talk to be very profound, in part because what she's talking about is is making art by making yourself vulnerable. And, you know, we talked about that just, just before with, with Frank Ocean. I found a lot of what she was saying very moving about the way artists can interact with, with their audience. I, I thought that was there, was, there were some really interesting takeaways from that. And I, I didn't always think, as much as I thought she shouldn't be asking 
people to to do their work for free. I, I didn't like to see that message completely blotted out. That's true. I mean, the the idea, and and you're right. She spoke at length and very beautifully about vulnerability and sort of opening yourself up to experiences. You know, in a very mutual way, especially between fan and musician, and sort of when you crash on somebody's floor or couch, what that experience can be like, in a really beautiful way. But at the same time, maybe there's a line between what you ask of your fans and sort of the more traditionally passive uh, recipients of your music than of the people whom you're asking to be performers alongside you. Uh, In addition to everything she had to say in the TED Talk, um, just the community that she built around this, I thought was really inspiring. And, And it, you know, for better or worse, it flagged this new way for artists to start making money with for their music. You know, there are a lot of other artists who followed in her footsteps, made much smaller amounts of money, but were still able to raise enough to make a record, which just wasn't possible for them before. No, I think that's exactly right. I think that, you know, as as all the technologies shifting in in the music industry coming up with inventive ways to survive, you know, she certainly she certainly was emblematic of that. Well, there are a million other things that we could talk about uh, that <laughs> happened in 2012. Well, we're trying to move through the, the these years quickly in these episodes. Um, I, I want to wrap this one up with... Um, what may be the one thing that most people or many people perhaps in the music <laughs> world will remember 2012 for? Open Gangnam Style. Gangnam Style. I mean, okay, so it's obviously Gangnam Style. I. I hear the song and I just start laughing, and I think that's the way a lot of people took the song. But the video for it is also just bonkers, and it at uh, in 2012 became the most streamed video in YouTube history, uh, past the billion mark, then the two billion mark, uh, and it's now nearly three billion streams on this song and this video. And most of them were by Anastasia. <laughs> Hey, you cannot believe how popular this song remains among elementary school kids. I have heard it played at low the many elementary school get-togethers, and the kids freeze as though they've been hit by lightning and then go bonkers. I think that's a really good point. I mean, I think within the world of and, and Anastasia, you can you can back me up or contradict me here, but in the world of K-pop, Psy and Gangnam Style we're sort of talking about a novelty song and somebody who's maybe viewed as a little bit of a novelty artist. Would you say that that's true? Oh, absolutely. And I mean, I think there was such self-awareness in the video. I will totally give Psy, sort of the creator of this viral hit, credit for it. Like, it was not meant seriously. There was nothing about it that was serious. And he caught a wave and he rode that thing and rode that thing. And, and he seemed to be winking at the camera the whole time and the video. It wasn't that we were laughing at Sai, we were laughing with him. I think it's also important, though, that, you know, K-pop in America, that trend in part got a foothold through this song. Oh, definitely. My 13-year-old daughter is absolutely obsessed with K-pop, is obsessed with BTS, can name, you know, can name individual members of these groups, is asking me, can you, you know, can you get me this album and this album? 
I mean, she wasn't necessarily like hooked on Gangnam style, but I think she was able to have access to some of this music because of the foothold that this kind of silly song was was able to get. Oh, totally. Open Gangnam Style. All right, well, we'll, 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 we'll go out on Gangnam Style. <laughs> uh, 2012, thanks, everybody. Uh, 2013 coming up next. Uh, I'm Robin Hilton with NPR Music, Stephen Thompson, Anastasia Tsokos. Uh, talking with us from your closet in your bedroom with a blanket over your head. Is that where you... Super glamorous public radio life. <laughs> <laughs> all right, thanks, everybody. Thank it's you. all songs considered. Gangnam Did you know that over 15 million people a month listen to NPR podcasts according to PodTracks podcast metrics? Check out all our shows at npr.org slash podcasts. That's npr.org slash podcasts.